Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't, today is March the 23rd, 2022. This is episode 3059 of the Survival Podcast. It's Wednesday. It's interview day. I have Chris Coulter standing on the line. He is the author of a book called The Complete Guide to Survival Gardening. We're going to talk about that today. We're also going to talk about the importance of small family farms in the 2020s and, and how it's more important than ever, even though there's less of them than ever at any time, and the concept of building a full-time market garden to earn a living with or to earn part of your living with. We'll be talking about all of that and more in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors. Sponsor day number one today is JM Bullion. I love JM Bullion, man. That's where I get my silver and gold, and you should too. Here's some reasons why you should rely on them. One... Better pricing or as good pricing as all the big silver houses, Lear Capital, Monex, Atmex, all of them. So you're getting the same stuff for more, for, for less money, or you're getting it for the same money, and you're dealing with a small business where I can talk to the owner if I need to. And, uh, for instance, Lear Capital asked the sponsor of this show, and I told them no because they wouldn't let me talk to anybody that was really important over there. And I just, I don't need that. I need to be able to talk to somebody that can make things happen if necessary. Next, free shipping on all orders. And then next, they support the show you love. And then next, um, you get a discount if you're an MSB member. So why go anywhere else? Check them out today at jambullion.com. Next up today, next up today ridgewallet.com. I've been a Ridge Wallet user for four years now. About four years ago, a rep from Ridge Wallet reached out and said, We'd like to sponsor the show. And I said, I don't really know if this is a good fit or not. And they said, well, let us send you some sample products. So they sent me a Ridge Wallet, and I looked at it, and I looked at all the crap I keep in my billfold. Being a prepper, I like to carry lots of stuff on me. And I thought, I don't know about this. And I'm like, you can do anything for a month. So I took all my crap out of the wallet. I went through it, put everything that fit in the Ridge Wallet in the Ridge Wallet, started carrying the Ridge Wallet, and never went back. The billfold still sits on my shelf just to my left as I'm podcasting. And I, I kind of keep it, I guess, out of nostalgia or something like that. I just don't need it anymore. It's got my old IDs in it and stuff and old stuff like that. And I guess whatever, you know, maybe my kid or grandkid will want it someday. But who knows? Anyway, I have switched to Ridge Wallet. I think you give them a try. You will, too. And it protects you from identity theft by ensconcing your ID with those RFID tags and your credit cards with those RFID tags in metal, titanium, or some other form, depending on what option you pick. So that somebody can't just walk by you with a $9 tool they can buy off of eBay, wand your ass for your purse, and then find out the information on your cards. Because whether you knew it or not, people can do that. That's how that's how at risk you are carrying those cards around in a non-shielded way. So check them out today at RidgeWallet.com. And with that, let's drop on into the live feed with Chris, Chris Coulter and talk about the importance of family farms, full-time market gardening, and survival gardening along with his new book. And, folks, we are live, and if you're wondering, where is my special guest, Chris Coulter? He's here. You just can't see him. He's having camera issues, and rather than looking at a, a blank screen for his side, we decided we're just going to have him on an audio only. And with that, hey, Chris, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. Glad to be here. I am here. <laughs> and we're not keeping Chris anonymous or anything, guys. He's just having camera issues because today's a technical issue day. I've had a bunch of them already. That had nothing to do with Chris, so just of course we have another one. Uh, well, we're here to talk today about like kind of broken down into three topics. Really, we're going to talk about 
the importance of family farms today, small family farms. That's something that's really eroded over the years. We had the whole thing back in the 70s, go big or go home from the Department of Agriculture. Uh, I can't remember the ask clown that said that. And uh, it, it has really happened a lot. And it's led, led to less food stability. We'll talk about if you're going to do that, how to actually make a living with a market garden and what a market garden is. And we'll talk about it from the standpoint of survival gardening or the term I prefer is subsistence gardening. It's how I grew up. Uh, we provided a lot of our own food with subsistence garden. Uh, we had about a quarter acre garden and I would say there was almost no vegetables bought uh, at the grocery store at, at that time. So that's a real thing that goes back, that goes back to the seventies too, cause that's how old I am now. Uh, with that in mind, Chris, let's start off with, you know, how did, how did you end up relying so much on the land yourself? How did you get into gardening and homesteading and all that stuff in the first place? Well, my story's uh, probably much the same as yours. And if you're looking for a name, it's Earl Butts. He was the guy, the secretary of agriculture yeah. in the seventies. He was a butt. So you can remember it that way. That's true. Uh, so yeah, much the same thing. I grew up on a small family farm, uh, came from farm families. My, uh, mother's side were farmers. My father's side, uh, my grandfather was a tenant farmer all his life and he had seven sons and they all generally went to the military and then went and got a factory job, but they were still tied to the land in the fact that they all had property. They all had big gardens. We raised beef cattle. We raised tobacco. We had a few fruit trees, orchards, lots of animals. So like you, we, we were used to growing our own food. We always ate our own beef. And that was just something for me that was normal um, that, that we did at the time. Very cool. And, you know, reading your bio, you uh, spent some time outside of the United States. And I think there's a lot to can be gleaned from that in uh, seeing how other cultures do things or also seeing maybe in some places how hard it is because, you know, some places are, they rely on it so much and it's kind of easy, I guess, or easier. And other places, it's hard to even get a little allotment of land that you're allowed to, uh, to, to grow food on. So what were your insights uh, that you gained from living and growing outside the U.S.? Well, a lot of insights as far as, number one, that it really takes um, very little for people to survive. I think we're so pampered and we're, we've been given so many opportunities and so many benefits that when we see someone who's you, you see them on this little patch of land that looks like it's dried out it looks like there's nothing there to eat but yet they're doing fine they're subsisting on that and so we can learn a lot about their techniques how do they survive apparently they know a lot about their their, their uh, environment they know about how to produce food they know how to feed their families that is tough though for them as far as you talk about land ownership that's a thing that's not common all over the world so we're blessed to be able to own land and be able to manage it how we want to manage it. So that's not common, but people that, um, you know, local knowledge, I've often traveled in places with the um, intention of doing some development and teaching, but it always seems like I learn more from them than I'm there to offer. And I think that's what we have to do. When we go with, um, you know, with an open mind to these places and we can just learn a lot. And I've learned an awful lot just seeing different uh, systems uh, in the desert and the jungle uh, all across the world. So that's been a, that's been actually a benefit to me more than anything. It's interesting you say that. I was watching some of, uh, Jeff Lawton's old videos today from back in 2013 when he did his first online PC, like all the stuff he did leading up to it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he went to Hawaii and he, he did a, like a 20 minute video on, on the ponds of Molokai and right. how they, they run these ponds from the very highlands all the way down filtering and how it turns into brackish water and then it goes into the, 
ocean water and the fish come in and they, and, and you could tell that like, you know, you're talking about one of the, if not the most foremost living experts on permaculture in the world. And you could see him standing there just going, I don't know shit. Yeah. I don't know anything, right? Like, like, oh my, like you could tell he was completely overwhelmed with the concepts that were so far beyond anything he had experienced before. And I think there's something to that, that, uh, you know, Mark Twain said that, uh, travel is, uh, is terminal to prejudice. And I think getting out to these other cultures is probably one of the biggest things we can do. We learn about methods and varieties that, you know, if you look at like the Baker Creek catalog, half of the things listed in there are like, we found this when we went to Thailand and we went to a, you know, a, right. a farmer's market or something and we took seed out and we brought it home and holy crap, it grows here too. Yeah. And that's one of the things, the benefits of travel is that we really need to expand our diet. You know, we've so restricted ourselves in the plants that we use and there are so many plants out there that we can use for food and just such a variety uh, that, that yeah, as you said, a lot of those grow right here just fine. You know, no matter where you're at in the United States, there's probably something different, something extra you can grow. And, and Baker Creek's one of our favorites. We do, we produce seed for them. So we use a lot of their varieties and try a lot of their stuff. So I'm always excited as well to, uh, to try some different stuff every year. Very, very cool. So, you know, we get a lot of people that, that I'm a patriot. You need to be more worried about the government and all you know, that kind of stuff comes at us all the time because mm-hmm. We don't spend as much time in politics, I think, as some people would prefer us to. Well, that's too bad. But I also really feel that this topic, if you care about liberty, is incredibly important. And mm-hmm. could you say maybe a few words on why it's important for freedom-loving people to support small agriculture and small growers, locally especially? Well, that just uh, the primary means of control, and it has been through history, and, and it's around the world. You can just read the news and see that today is food. You know, food is power. And that's one thing that if you have that, if you're self-sufficient or mostly self-sufficient in food production on your own property, in your own area, that's really hard to take away. And that gives you an awful lot of freedom and a lot of independence. And I think that's why sometimes um, that's not <laughs> desirable for big government to, to be to allow you to be independent and to grow things on your farm, to eat things on your farm and even to sell things to your neighbors. You know, there's a lot of control there. They don't want to see this uh, localized food production that is really spread out. They like to see industrialized agriculture and just a few choke points. And that's just a lot easier to control. But if you if you just spread out that production over lots and lots of places and lots and lots of small farms, you know, backyard production and even like small to mid-sized farms like our size and even a little bit larger than us, you know, that's really hard to control. Uh, if we can produce our food, then we produce a lot of freedom for ourselves. Now you mentioned it. How, how big is your farm? Uh, we're a 30 acre farm. Okay, that's pretty big. We're, yeah, that's, that's mixed. We, 25 acres is the original property. We bought five more acres to add to it. And we've got, we've got a diversity of maybe one or two acres in orchards, about 12 or 13 in pasture for uh, beef cattle, and then about four acres that are, that are production plots for vegetable production, seed production. So, it's it's all mixed in there and, and quite a bit of rotation going on, Qu- quite a bit of natural areas that are planted to just native plantings uh, allowed to grow up, go back to go back to wild a little bit. And that that tends to really help us on our whole you know agro ecosystem that we've got here as well. And four acres of garden mm-hmm. market garden, call it what you want, four acres of vegetable farming will wear your butt out. 
I think that there's so many people that think they need 100 acres to work with. It's great you have more land, and when you start grazing, then bigger plots are a lot easier to maintain. But when it comes down to to market gardening, I mean, I know people that make a living off less than an acre with that, of, of actual that production. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You don't need anywhere near that. And, and every time I'm out there, you know, feeding, we feed hundreds of people. And that's what we do from our farm. But if it was just me feeding myself, I was thinking the other day, I'm like, well, man, I wouldn't need but a hundred square feet or something. Cause you know, yeah. if you're just talking about your family, it's, it's very little. Uh, you know, we're just kind of a different kind of farmer. We do a lot of uh, providing for other people, but yeah, you can, yeah. you can make a living definitely on less than an acre, even a market farmer, acre and a half. The benefit from a larger acreage is just a buffer. You know, you have more areas to do more with. It's a lot easier to integrate animals uh, sometimes with a little bit larger areas. And, and that just gives us a room to, to let some land lay fallow occasionally. You know, we can take some plots out of production for a year or two, grow green manures, grow cover crops, and just let that uh, let that rest a little bit. So that gives you some buffer. You have to be a little more intense when you're talking about smaller acreages. Uh, so that's the only thing. But we can, on a larger acreage, we can gather fertility. We can concentrate it where we want to. So it's just a little bit of a buffer. No, it, no doubt. I mean, growing up, my grandparents, you know, I said at the beginning, it was a quarter acre. It was a quarter acre of space. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, half that. So, like, a, a, I guess it's a 12, 12.125 of grow because about half of it was pathways and spaces. That's the way my granddad did things. So, you know, you're, if you had grown full on intense growing, you could have doubled it or close to it anyway. And even with that, I spent a hell of a lot of time when I was a kid carrying grocery sacks full of stuff to families up and down the road that we just gave away because right. there were a lot of older people. And we were kind of one of the last places that was being done in earnest on our on our road mm-hmm. um, because the whole place was just aging out. Like my grandparents were young for the place we lived and they were, you know, in their late 70s, early 80s at that point. Mm-hmm. And so even with that small space, there was a point where. Frankly, my grandmother got tired of canning stuff and said, okay, for just she'd put it in bags and write names on it and say, take off. It's amazing how much you can produce if you do things the right way. Right. And, and if you ever feel like you're restricted for space, then what we found out, and, and I, back in the late 90s when I sort of started reading some of the books, Joel Salton's book came out in the late 90s, Pasture, Poultry, Profits. But Elliot Coleman was another one that was uh was oh, a real yeah. um, influence on me because he was here he was in Maine and he was raising stuff like in January in Maine and I'm like well I'm in Kentucky it's actually warm here I can do a lot more so when you're restricted for space all you have to do is extend your season and that's the thing we've been doing more and more every year with just some you know low tech techniques with cold frames or a, an unheated high tunnel and that's where you really expand your diet is when you're eating year round from your property and we can you know we have a salad green any time of the year we can have some kind of salad green right now we've our last lettuce was is done but we're eating uh, claytonia and we're eating spinach and then our lettuce that's going to be transplanted here probably next week is in the trays so we got a little lettuce gap but you can have some kind of green edible year round with with not too much work yeah and that's like most of the market growers i know that's their money crop is greens anyway because it's fast turn and it's it's high price per pound um, so they're able to, to do a lot of production with it. And it's something that you, when you get a customer, it's not something they keep a long time. So you kind of have that repeat business going, right? 
You're right. And there's there's some things that you have to think about when you're when you're doing your market model. What do you want to produce? You know, sometimes a customer is only going to buy that once or twice a season. But, you know, salad greens, that's a high value per square foot. So you want to keep that going. So they're going to buy that almost every week. So you have to think about that. Now, do you just do salad greens? Well, we don't. We have to grow a diversity of crops. We have a CSA. We have a farmer's market. You know, people need diversity and we have we offer 40 or 50 different things through the season. Wow. And they like that. And that's not that we make a ton of money on each one of those crops. I know exactly which ones I make money on, but I have to grow the ones I don't make as much money on to offer diversity and to please the customer. So that's that's not a bad thing. But you do want to focus on the crops that you're going to make the most money on, because being a sustainable farm, sustainability means profitability. So I do have to, to make a profit. And I think sometimes people forget that when they're looking at, you know, their market model. What do I want to grow? I want to grow salad greens. Well, that's okay, but that's going to be a specific market. And if you can, you know, tap into a restaurant market or something like that, that sounds great. But diversity is generally a, a pretty good idea, even just for a safety measure for, you know, every year we have crops that do better than other crops. And if I had four acres of watermelons and we have a bad watermelon year, I'm, I go broke. So <laughs> having lots of variety, lots of different crops, uh, orchard crops, small fruit, then that gives me a diversity and, and a little bit of, uh, a little bit of security there. Very cool. What are, what are the opportunities out there for people to get into market gardening? Uh, I think a lot of people think that it's easier. It seems like people fall into two camps. It's easier than it is or it's harder than there is. And I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. I think you're, you're right on that. I, I think you can't over um, – I can't underestimate the amount of work because it is a lot of work and it's very hard. If you don't like to work hard, it's probably not for you. But it's also not um, it's not impossible. It's uh, if you if you enjoy working outside, you're doing physical labor, uh, then there's lots of opportunities. We have to turn away business all the time. We, we really can't. We try to keep our operations small enough where um, my family, we have three kids. Uh, my mother still helps a lot. She's retired. So we try to keep it. We can do most of the work ourselves. Occasionally we'll have an intern or two. Uh, but, um, you know, I turn away. I turn away. Uh, opportunities for markets for customers because we can only do so much so it's out there and even specialty things you know we do a few cut flowers to add to our farmers market but there's no cut flower growers close to us that i know of there's a niche if you want to if you wanted to just do that on an acre that's a high value crop there's that opportunity you know there's there's a anything we do we have we have bees but i keep them primarily for pollination uh you know you can expand any one of these little parts of our whole farm into an old, an entire enterprise if you wanted to. So there's there's a demand for local produce. There's a demand for organic, uh, well-raised produce. It's out there. It's just it's really untapped because we just don't have enough farmers. We don't have enough young people that want to get into this uh, full time or even part time. Uh, so we just we need more farmers. Now, I've found the majority of people that go into this business one way or another, whether it's, you know, poultry, whether it's market gardening, a combination, whatever, they don't fail to produce. They fail to move product. Yes. They forget it's a business. Uh, you have to ask yourself, you know, doing a farm is a small business. Would you start a would, would you feel comfortable starting a, a generic just have in their mind a generic small business? managing that, doing the financials, doing the marketing, doing the business side of it. And if they're not comfortable doing that, they're probably not going to be successful at farming because marketing is the primary thing. As you said, it's it's not that difficult to learn how to grow, but it is difficult to be able to move that product, to make a profit. 
and to know, you know, to deal with customers. Some people don't like to deal with customers. You know, it's, it can be, it can be a pain. Uh, you know, you have 90%, 95% of customers that are great, but you got that 5% that are a headache all the time. And so people say well, the customer's always right. And I say, no, you know, they're not. They're not always <laughs> no. right. There's, there's always that 5%. You can, you can be polite. You can be nice, but sometimes they're, you're better off without that 5%. So just kind of push them somewhere else nicely and focus on your good customers. And then, and then uh, it works a lot smoother that way. Yeah. Any business needs to be comfortable firing customers. Now, <laughs> if you have, if you have one customer in this type of business and it's a big restaurant, and, you know, like we had a, a restaurant customers buy between 80 and 100 dozen duck eggs a month from us. Wow. At, at $8 a dozen. So that's a big yeah. customer, right? So when they were a pain in the butt, okay, we'll deal with you. But if you had somebody that was a pain and they bought two dozen a month, I'm sorry, we can no longer serve you. Yeah. And, it, but and it's I, I just, I can't, I can't waste my time. It's not fair to my good customers. Right. And the, and the people that generally cause you problems are those that you'll never actually make a profit from them. They'll never they'll always cost you more than you're actually making from them. So you just have to learn to do that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what are the biggest obstacles to becoming a market gardener? And, and, you know, in your experience, what's the best way to overcome them? OK, well, I think the one I hear mentioned the most and the one that seems to be the biggest issue is is land access. And, and I understand that land prices. It's different in the different parts of the country where we're at. Land prices are really increasing exponentially. So it's really uh, hard to get in on land if you if your idea is to buy land and to buy, you know, a, a pretty big parcel of land. I think that can't. I think you have to look at leasing. I think you have to look at um, renting land as far as that goes. I think it's just a much better, more profitable idea. So you can get around that land issue. Um, it's really you have to work your network there. You know, we don't I could take a little more land if I wanted. In fact, uh, we have a neighbor who lets us use about a half an acre a mile, a mile or so away from here because we need some isolation for our seed crops. So, you know, there are people out there that are willing to let you use land, to let you, you know, give them a percentage of the of the produce back or something like that. So I think you can get around that. Uh, the other big issue is just learning how to grow. And you can do that in your backyard. You know, there's not a big scale up from learning how to grow certain crops on a small scale and then just doing that on a long, a larger scale. So it's it's a knowledge thing. It's a land thing. But if you if you can settle the land thing, then you can work on the knowledge thing. And, and that's really all you need. And you just have to have a, a willingness to get started, I think. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people that do the market gardening business. They don't own any land. Uh, Curtis Stone, when he started, he was he got up to farming about four acres of vegetables. And at that point, he didn't own anything. Yeah. He, he was basically spin farming in people's backyards and in, in urban environments. I think it's all about how creative you can get. And there's always a lease land option as well. If you can't just get use, like I think mostly what he did to be, well, I'm going to grow X amount and I will give you a week's worth of vegetables every week while I'm in production. Right. And most people were happy to make that exchange. It's like, I have a garden that I don't have to do anything for, but even leasing some land, it's people say, well, there's an expense. Well, there's an expense in owning land. Oh, yeah. There's an expense in buying land, right? So you're making a temporary short term expense versus a long term Ongoing expense of both real property cost, real property maintenance, and real property taxation. 
Absolutely. And when you're just getting started, if you if you don't know this is going to be a long term thing for you to do, it just makes more sense for you to lease some ground. Try it out and see if this is going to work for you. The only the only caveat I would I would go with is don't plant any long term perennial crops on lease land. I had a friend that put in an orchard on a with a gentleman's agreement. You know, he shook the hand of the old farmer and said, you know, you can use this land as long as you want. Well, that long as you want ended up until, until the son decided he wanted the land and then <laughs> took it over and there was no agreement. So there you go. So that's that's the only thing. Watch yourself as far as, you know, I'm going to go in this area and then plant a bunch of high priced plants and I may get kicked out next year. So, yeah, I mean, I might just as an ecological thing, throw a few pecans in the ground or something, but I'm not. I'm not putting in trees at 30 bucks a tree into <laughs> yeah. an orchard on somebody else's land. I'm just not doing it. But there's there's a lot of precedence for like you mentioned Joel Salatin. He he basically said don't even think about buying land in the beginning. Go you know go run 50 chickens either on land you already have or land you can borrow and give them away. You know that's kind of his entry level getting in on it. And if you look at like Greg Judy, Greg Judy's managing thousands of acres. I think he owns like 40. Oh yeah. You know, and I think 30 of 30, 20 of the 40 was like landed, like the guy next door to him died and he ended up leaving him half of it or something. I, something like that. It's, it might be a hundred he owns, but it's, it's a fraction of what he's actually managing. And it's, it's, it's just a lot more cost effective a lot of times. And I'm all about owning land, but I, I don't want that to get in the way. Here's another thing. Uh, I was going to ask you about this anyway. Usually I hold you listener questions till the end there, but, uh, Fox Project says, can a, can a food forest serve as a productive market garden? I would, that's actually not the one I was supposed to bring up, I think, but let's go ahead and handle that. What do you think on, you know, you, you, you have an orchard basically, and, and that's a piece of what you do. I kind of think that orchards are great and food forests are like natural orchards, mm-hmm. but they're very bursty with production. And I think that it helps to have either livestock or a market garden, something to even out production and cash flow, unless that's not what you're looking for. Yeah, I would agree with you. We, we, uh, the area around our house and having some spaces allows us to do lots of different things. The area around our house, I sort of planted as a food forest. And really that, that becomes the place where we go out and graze and we enjoy the food forest. You know, it's not, I don't count that in as our production. If we have a burst of fruit or something like that, I can add a little bit of that to the market, but just the whole nature of that, you're not just pushing for heavy yields and consistent yields, as you said, it's very bursty. So it's not something you can really plan on. I would plan it sort of as, as a bonus. If you get a windfall on those, you can sell some of it. But that's mostly for our enjoyment. You know, I can count on my orchard as far as producing so much per year. So on the business side of things, you know, food forests are great. We have one, but it's not something I, I would do primarily as a market garden. You know, if I had a large operation and I was doing all this, this was, if that, this was my primary income instead of podcasting and I put in a beautiful food forest, mm-hmm. I'd spend a couple thousand dollars on a tough shed and put a tiny house right inside that food forest. And I guarantee you I could rent that on Airbnb or hip camp or something for more money than that forest will ever make me in fruit. And I think that diversity of mindset is a, is a big deal. And, and I think that that's the kind of thing and, I think like our grandparents, dude, if they had the opportunities we did today, they would be kicking all of our asses if they were still around for not taking them. Mm-hmm. So like the younger people, your grandparents are still around. I'm not talking about that generation. I'm talking about the, the, the grandparents that grew up doing this stuff during and prior to the Great Depression. If they were like, 
You mean you set up a shed and some fool hippie will pay you $300 a week to sleep in there with no air conditioning and you're not doing it? Uh, I mean, right. you know what I mean? They would be like, you are out because they made money on everything. Yeah, absolutely. And you, and you have to, you know, if you want to be, you know, if you want to continue to do what you want to do, you know, you have to have those little side things that, well, if I can make so much doing this, this and this, then I'm going to, I'm going to put a shed up. I'm going to do this. So maybe that gives me the opportunity to do something else that I want. So yeah, all those little things, they're create, if you're creative, if you're creative, you can find a way to make, make it profitable. I think another thing people can do to be part of this, if they're not, Growers yet are not grown enough is they can build basically a service and tie into people like yourself and basically have like a, you know, a buyer's co-op or something where we used to sell when we were doing large amounts of eggs, which we're not doing large amounts anymore. We had that one big restaurant customer. Another customer we had, they would call us up. We need, you know, we're going to need next month 40 dozen eggs. So we would know a month in advance to put them aside for them. And that's what they were doing. They basically had a catalog of different producers and what they had. And then they were taking orders a month out and then they would come by the farm and pick it up and they do all their deliveries in one day. And there's so many people that want to buy this stuff and they either can't find it or it's so disconnected. Like we have customers still, they'll drive 45 minutes to an hour to get a, you know, three dozen eggs this month. And that's, I almost feel bad, but that's the way it has to be. But if that person wants to buy from five different producers, there's their weekend. It's gone. But if you can aggregate that through that kind of a, like a co-op funnel, well, then everybody everybody wins. Yeah, and I've seen that model, and it works well, I think. There are some people in our area that do that. They will, you know, sort of gather things from different farms, especially specialty farms. Maybe they only produce one thing. Maybe they only produce eggs, or maybe this farm only produces vegetables. This produces uh, cheese or, or some kind of meat product, and they'll aggregate those and offer those as a CSA. I think that's a great idea and it's actually a lot less work for the farmers. You know, we're sort of, we do a little bit of everything. We, we have a diversity. So we're sort of, our CSA is everything produced on our farm, but I think it's a great idea and it just allows more people to, you know, have a sales outlet there. And as you said, it's, it's a benefit to the customer if somebody can do that. And, you know, that's just take somebody with management skills, somebody with communication skills that can gather that and to uh, get that going. And if you do eventually build your own uh, product stream. Now you have a market to drop it right into. Right. And cause I, the reason I bring that up is I hear so many people, I'm going to get some land and I'm going to grow all this stuff. And then I'm going to have this, you know, direct to consumer model with this multi-product delivery type thing. And I'm like, you could do that today. Mm-hmm. And then if you become a producer, you, you have the, the more complicated cause like figuring out how to grow, there's trouble. Don't get me wrong. And you put out a bunch of tomatoes and get hit with a blight and it knocks them. There's all kinds of things that go wrong. But you're going to sort that part out. You're going to figure it out. We've been doing this for 10,000 years growing food like this. But if you don't move the product, you have rotting product. And in that case, you'd have been better off not growing anything because you would have the expense of growing it. Right. And you, and you have to have a plan for that. And the best thing, if, if someone's just getting started and wants to know what kind of markets are out there, well, go to the markets and find out. Go talk to people. Go to farmers markets and see what's available and see what's not. If you see a big hole there of product that, that's not being filled, then you can fill that, you know, and, and, and talk to people. If you see there's something that sells out quite a bit at the market, you're like, well, this could probably take some more. So let's talk to the farmers. Let's talk to the, the customers and see maybe this is something I can add some product to the, to the market with. So it just takes going out there and observing and seeing uh, what market you have before you jump in, as you said, big. And, you know, I'm going to grow two acres of tomatoes and don't have a way to sell them. Make sure you have that market 
and then uh, and then you'll be fine. Some it, it happens a lot. People contact me and they say, I have all this produce. What do I do with it? I'm like, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> Feed it to your pigs because yeah. I can't move it for you. You know, you should have thought of that beforehand. That's what pigs are good for. Yeah, pigs are good for that. And it's funny you mentioned tomatoes because when you were talking about, like, go to the market, we used to go to the farmer's market in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and we lived up there. And it was kind of a – it wasn't what you would really want a farmer's market to be. It was pretty small. But one thing nobody ever bought was tomatoes. You literally never – there's everybody had tomatoes, nobody bought them. And one day I'm walking around, and I'm like, Dad, you know, it's kind of weird when somebody you don't know walks up to you and starts talking to you about things like, why aren't you buying tomatoes? But let me just see. So I was like – you know, I'm down here. I do a lot of growing myself. I'm looking, you know, and this is what I do. Um, and I just wondered, nobody here seems to ever buy any tomatoes, even though all the vendors have them. Why not? And almost everybody I asked that said that everybody there that they knew that would come there to buy stuff was a gardener. Mm-hmm. And since every gardener in Hot Springs grows tomatoes, about the only people that would buy a tomato would be a tourist that happened to be in Hot Springs for the weekend that stopped by the farmer's market. Absolutely. Yeah. And so that was a product that was overproduced for the, not at the farmer's market so much, but for the region itself. Yeah. Right. So you'd think that's the easiest thing. Everybody loves tomatoes. Well, you know, most people that go to farmer's markets probably have some level of a garden of their own. That's, you know, I guess if you're in LA or something, maybe not, but if you get a little outside of that complete yuppie zone, yeah. And I, and I think that's a, that's a key point. And, and if you want to get around that, you know, we don't have a whole lot of tomatoes ready in the peak of summer because we figured this one out. Uh, our tomatoes, we we push for, I've got tomatoes ready to set out right now so we can have tomatoes in May. Now, you try to sell those same tomatoes in April and May with just maybe a high tunnel or just a little bit of supplemental heat, and you will sell tomatoes all day long. And bring those tomatoes to the market in October and November and you will sell tomatoes at a premium all day long. So you have to realize these things and say, well, I'm going to produce for the, the front end and the back end of the market yeah. because everybody else doesn't have it then. So you learn those things over time with that experience. So that's a great example. That is a great example, and that's true. That's when they're not around. That's when they're not available. Everybody's given up and gone to winter crops or something by late, or they don't have anything ripe early in the season. Uh, what other advice might you give to someone who wants to begin a career as a full-time grower? They don't just want to side hustle. This is what they want to do in their life. Well, I would say um, that probably you kind of have to decide if your your spouse or your partner, whoever you're going to go in business with, is, is sort of on board with that. Because uh, God bless my wife, uh, the day after we got married back in, I think, 2002, uh, she was planting tomatoes with me in the garden, and she's, so she's been with me ever since. So if you have somebody that's willing to do that with you to help out with you, that makes a big difference in, in longevity and uh, and be able to do that. I think um, there's other things to jump into. I think a lot of people, they have this idea of a CSA. I want to start with a CSA. That's a bad place to start unless you sort of pre-sold that. It's A CSA is an expectation if you're going to have so much produce every week for a certain amount of time. That's really hard to do for an inexperienced grower. Your best um, incubator is probably a farmer's market to get started just because you don't have to have a lot of anything. You can have a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You'll be able to sell that, and you'll be able to build your customer base up there. You know, We started our first CSA at probably 07, and we have a couple customers at least I know that are still with us since then. So you, what we've done over the years is just to build your customer base, and that's going to be your money. That's going to be your profitability. So you just have to start making connections. You know, and if you want to do a CSA and if you want to do a small scale one, just go find five or six people and, and just let them know up front. 
I'm just going to try this out. Would you be willing to, you know, take whatever I can grow for the next three months? And there are people out there definitely willing to do that. They understand you're just getting started. Uh, they'll give you some grace on that. Um, so that's a good place to start. The other thing I would say is, is never sell bad produce. Never. That's, that's the, the number one thing you never want to do. Don't discount produce. Don't sell bad produce. If you sell someone bad produce, not, sometimes it happens. You know, you, maybe a watermelon or something is not completely ripe. It's hard to tell, but don't intentionally sell anything bad. Just keep your quality really high. You'll only have happy customers and those happy customers will tell other customers. So your word of mouth is your best uh, advertising on that. But if you sell somebody one bad thing one time, what happens? They always remember that. <laughs> so that's a tough one to do. So sell good produce all the time. Quality high. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that 100%. Um, what makes your book on survival gardening different than other gardening books? I've got your book right here. We can't see you, but we can see your book. If I can get the lighting to stop uh, glaring off of it, The Complete Guide to Survival Gardening. Okay. Yeah, we uh, that county was a brainchild back in 2015. I wrote that several years ago uh, when we were living in Malaysia. And we were used to, you know, eating off the farm and having our own produce. But uh, we were living now in a city of two million people and in a 15th floor of a high rise apartment. And for the first time, we were really dependent on um, buying all of our produce and all of our food at the grocery store. And that was a shock to me. So we were, we were I was I went through the mental exercise of, you know, what um, what information do I need if I want to produce everything myself? You know, I've read lots of gardening books. I'm an avid reader. I love books. I've read lots of books. But at the time, there was not a book out there specifically with the idea that how if I don't have access to the Home Depot, if I don't have access to my nursery or garden center and for some reason I'm stuck on my property, nothing goes in, nothing comes out. How where do I start as far as producing most of the food that I need to survive? So I wrote the book. With that in mind, just my, it was a mental exercise for me. Really, I just enjoyed writing it as a framework for someone to get started to say, you know, where do I start? You know, there's a lot of books out there. Some of them are specific. Some of them are too general. This was just a way to get people somewhere to start that has, you know, pretty much all the information you need. Uh, I packed a lot of tables, packed a lot of charts in there, a lot of lists and stuff. I would find myself going to look for you know, what's the uh, the spacing for this vegetable? What's the storage conditions for this vegetable? You know, what's the NPK on blood meal? Uh, so instead of finding lots of sources, I just pack them all into one place. So I can refer to that often as well myself. I'll go look something up and and it's all in one place in a hard copy uh, that you can take a look at. So that that gives people a starting place. You know, we're zone six, Kentucky. So we're sort of right in the middle of the United States. So a lot of the book is, you know, what I would grow here in our area. Now that's translatable. If you're further north than us, you're probably going to grow some different stuff. You're further south down in Texas, so you're going to have different stuff. But it just gets you to thinking about, you know, if I had to, and that's not unreasonable after the last two years, if I had to, you know, grow everything or a, a large percentage of my food on my property, where would I start? So let me then ask you a question because we're talking about being self-sufficient here. I, I get two to four to six emails a month. Man, I'm going to move out in the sticks and I'm going to start a farm and I'm going to grow all my own food. How much land do I need? And when I hear that, I, well, usually I don't hear it. I read it and I hear it in my head and I hear it kind of said like a stoned hippie in California because that's how I kind of look at it. Man, I'm going to do it all. 
And uh, I, 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 I take that in and I always come back with, no, you're not. And then I give them the best answer that I can because I, I kind of feel like you're not going to grow all your own food. And that when I mentioned like my time as a teenager and you know, preteen growing up with my grandparents, we grew a lot of food and we hunted a lot and we foraged a lot. And we, man, we probably produced 70%, 75% of what we consumed either from hunting, fishing, gathering and growing. And, you know, my grandmother still went to the grocery store a couple of times a week, but Getting to a point where you actually have some level of self-sufficiency, uh, maybe a significant amount. How much land do you think a family of four really needs? Well, I think I think you're right in saying that. You know, I think very few people. You know, we we still go to the grocery store. You know, we we are pretty self-sufficient and things go, but we still go to the grocery store and we still buy milk because you know it's it's worth more for us to have our time that we're not spending milking a cow then, you know, we can just go buy milk. So, you know, we're not self-sufficient as far as that goes. We could be if we wanted to bring the milk. We always like to keep a a Jersey cow in the herd so we can take her and milk her if we have to. But as far as uh, being totally self-sufficient, it's probably not uh, practical. But I think people are a lot less sufficient than they think they are. And they think this is this dream. I can go and live and, and graze and never have to buy anything. That's probably not realistic. Uh, but you can, as you mentioned, on just an acre or two, probably grow, uh, 70 or 80% of your, you know, fresh produce. It's like, what's, what are your goals? Are your goals to be totally self-sufficient? Then you're going to probably need a lot more land than that. But if it's, if it's your goal is to cut your grocery bill in half, you know, you don't need much for that. You just need some raised beds and maybe a few chickens. Maybe, um, you want to, you want to grow all your own fruit. You don't want to buy fruit anymore. Well, then that's a, that's a more realistic goal. And you can do that on just a small piece of land. So it really, what's your goal? What's your end term? You know, as far as being really nothing comes in, nothing comes out, you're going to need quite a bit more for that because you have to talk about fuel. You have to talk about water. You have to talk about all those things. Uh, so what are your goals? You know, if it's just to produce a lot of your own food, then you don't need but an acre or two. If you're more like, I'm going to produce everything on my property, uh, then you're going to need a lot more. I would add, I think that the more you do with ruminants, the more you can be self-sufficient because grass grows, the cow eats it, grass grows, the sheep eats it, sheep or the cow poops on the grass that it tramples, grows more grass, paddock shift. So if you have a diet like mine, which is about 90% carnivore, occasional treats of some dubers here and there, and most of my vegetation that I eat are greens or things like broccoli and stuff like that, I think it can be done on a relatively small piece of land as far as where you're cultivating, but you need a few acres or so to be able to rotate. But I mean, if if you, if, if you can get somebody locally to provide insemination services for your, your heifer or two, I mean, how many cows does a family need a year? How many, or if you're doing pigs mixed in with that and some chickens and stuff, uh, you, you can probably do a lot more nutrient density per acre with less labor and inputs and work that way. Um, and that moves you in that direction. That's why I recommend everybody have some amount of livestock, even a small backyard, like do quail, do something, because the nutrient density there, and you know, with quail or chickens, you're probably going to be somewhat feed dependent, but you can buy, a, if you're talking a small operation, you can buy a lot at one time. You can go six months at a time on, on the feed that you purchase, and uh, if you can't figure something out in six months, as far as getting more feed, you got time to figure out some other plan. 
Yeah. And we, and we count our feed costs as fertilizer costs because what we're doing, we're just cycling fertilizer through the chickens. So instead of bringing in lots of chemical inputs, we accept the fact that we're buying chicken feed, you know, and so that helps a lot there. You're right with ruminants. Um, if you want to eat beef, if you're a carnivore, you're going to need some land with some grass on it for that, but they're really efficient. You know, you can, a cow calf, uh, you can, in our area, it takes about an acre, acre and a half. You can raise a steer up a year. You know, we eat one beef a year for ourselves. We try to sell one or two. That's about all we run. We run about uh, 10 to 12 head is, is the only, you know, all the room we have for beef. But, you know, you can grow a steer up every year on one or two acres. Uh, buy one in the spring. And I have a neighbor that does that. It's a pretty good system. He has uh, about four acres of grass. He buys a, buys some young stuff in the spring and then fattens it through the fall and has it butchered in the fall. It's gained a couple hundred pounds. And um, he's made his money back, and he's got good fresh beef. So that's an option, too. Yeah, I keep pushing people towards sheep as well. Uh, I don't really have the right land for it uh, with what I'm doing, but if I did, it's what I would do. I've been really enamored with what Greg Judy's doing with them. And the way I look at that, when you talk about self-sufficiency, if you kill a cow and you decide, I'm going to take care of it myself, you better have a front-end loader and some time and, 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 and a good back. Processing a, a you know a, a nine month old uh, hair sheep lamb, if you can process a deer, you can process a lamb. I mean, it's about the same size. A gambrel and a couple pulleys, and you you know maybe uh, I don't remember what you call them, but we build these things look like sawhorses with a cross in them, and you can lay them in there like a cradle to do some of the work. Like with that, you're you're set. You can you can handle it. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. I would I would recommend small animals for most people. It's just cattle. If you're if you're not used to dealing with cattle, they're big, and you know we we process our cattle with the help of our neighbor. He ton winches. We have to we haul those things up. We can clean them right there. We have all the processing equipment. If you don't have that, it's nearly impossible. So yeah, yeah. but a sheep. If you've done a deer, we kill lots of deer and we process those. We process hogs. We've had sheep in the past. We don't have any sheep now, but. That would be a, an ideal animal, something about that size that you can process process it yourself. You know, if you want to get something bigger, then, of course, um, I, I don't know. A rabbit's not a ruminant, but I always consider them sort of along the lines because everything they eat is green. So yeah. you can, on a, in a backyard, you can harvest all the rabbit's feed from a backyard. Patch, plant a little patch of alfalfa, 10 by 10 patch of yep. alfalfa. That, and you can dry some of that as hay. And so there's lots of options for protein out there. Yeah, Nick Ferguson says on the rabbits that basically you need a patch of like some alfalfa, clover, and, and grass and a bag mower. Yeah. And you can feed rabbits forever, you know, especially in a climate where you don't lose your grass. And like, you, like you said, you, they, I've even seen little mini hail, uh, uh, hail, uh, hail balers, hay balers. So you can make little mini bales of hay out of it. And you could, honest to God, I think if you can, if you can work a saw in a drill, you could probably build your own little mini baler. Yeah, there's there's actually plans for those, and it's it's actually um, they're not mechanized. It's just sort of like a a metal tube that you have like a press in. So there's there's plans for those little mini balers you can do by hand. So that's a great option as far as rabbits, and they're quiet. You know, <laughs> chickens are not so quiet. Sheep, cows, they're not that quiet. Pigs are especially not quiet. So if you're in an area neighborhood where you don't want anybody to to know you have animals, or maybe you're not supposed to have them, uh, rabbits are pretty quiet animals. Yeah, your quiet meat animals to me are rabbits. And muscovy ducks. And muscovy oh, yeah, ducks muscovies are, like, are quiet. Yeah, and they're like winged beef, man. They're <laughs> freaking delicious. I had, unfortunately, one of mine broke her neck, like, last week. And I was like, well, it sucks, but 
it's going to be a couple of good couple. lunches. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That sounds yeah. good. Yeah. If you stumble around here, you're going to end up in the pot. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about diversity, uh, on a sustainable farm. And we kind of hit on it earlier, but can you kind of reiterate why it's important to grow a variety of things and not just like a variety of vegetables, but you do vegetables, you do some orcharding, you do some livestock. Can you talk about how that creates stability for you, both for your family from a food source, but also from a business operation? Yeah, it's just uh, it's a healthier system. And I always like to refer to our farm as an agro ecosystem because you're you're managing animals, you're managing plants, you're managing perennials together and they benefit each other. If you just take them out and set them in a monoculture, an orchard that's not surrounded by uh, natural areas or never animals never go through the orchard, then you're going to have a lot more disease problems. You're going to have a lot of issues with that. But, you know, if you have chickens, what do we do? We let them go through the orchard in the fall. They clean up fruit. They scratch around. They eat weeds. Uh, they fertilize the orchard. So they're a benefit to the orchard, and we're feeding the chickens when we do that. You know, we have cattle that produce manure that recycles nutrients back to where we want it. If we concentrate the cattle, then we can concentrate their nutrients in a spot that we want them to do. So diversity is so important as far as that goes. As far as profitability, it's diverse because if one thing fails, then you've got something to back up on. Uh, we start taking seed contracts because we get paid for those in January. So, you know, our cash flow is mostly a summer uh, growing season cash flow, and it's nice to get some uh, diverse income that comes in in the middle of winter, you know, when a lot of not, a lot of stuff's not leaving the farm. So diversity helps with all that. As far as just um, giving us the ability to do different things and those things and, and really learning, you know, what does best integrated with this. And so we do more than one crop. We see what crop does well. You know, what can we make? uh what can we do with little effort? So you have to have all those things that are coming in. Uh, and diversity is, is a big part of that. It's just trying new things and seeing what works together. And it takes a long time to build a system uh, that works for you. Yeah, I would agree. And I think sometimes people don't even realize how powerful that diversity is from an ecological standpoint. I remember reading this study, and the study got messed up because of how, how far out it worked. And what they were doing is they were testing if they grew blackberries with grapes – and it was someplace in California where they're growing wine grapes, would it reduce the amount of damage done by leaf miners? And they were getting some really kind of corrupted results. They could, like they could tell something in the data wasn't right. Hmm. And they were, of course, they were only using organic uh, vineyards because that, that let them actually test the hypothesis. And when they eventually figured out if there was any place within four miles of the vineyard that was heavy into blackberries, it would have almost the same results as growing them on the same land because what was happening is these leaf miners were going into the blackberries first because they leafed out first, and the predators were knocking their population down before they had a chance to go to the grapes. But the, the effect was a four-mile radius effect. And that, that, to me, that's insane. But like then imagine what happens when you start stacking diversity into something you actually can control. Absolutely. And those those are connections that you don't really find until you start, you know, putting the pieces together. And as you said, just being observant, that's a that's a principle of permaculture that I love just to go out and observe and see, well, why is this? Why are these plants being attacked by pests and why are these plants don't have any pests on them? And you start looking around, it's like, well, maybe it's their site position. Maybe it's what's growing close to them. Maybe it's the soil. So you start finding those things, but you'll never find that in a monoculture. You'll never see those connections. You'll never be able to improve on that. You know, my background's in ecology and wildlife biology. 
Um, so I didn't know that was really preparing me for, you know, farming in a way that you started looking at nature. You're saying, you know, how does a natural system work as God intended it to work? You know, and, and what can I do to make it more like that and less like me trying to control it? Because it's just a lot of work to try to control everything. You know, if you can get a system that sort of runs itself, then that's going to be better for everybody. Yeah. And I mean, you find things that way that, you know, it's not even this thing grows with this thing. It's often like if I plant enough stuff in enough different places, nature tells me, hey, this plant does really good in this spot. And it may not be because of companion planting. It may be a microclimate thing. And unless you did all that diversity, you would never find that. And that's how nature works. Nature, like you'll see this big, like you go out into the forest and you see a big clump of blackberry, wild blackberry growing right on the edge of the forest. And it's not here. It's not there. It's this one spot. Well, it self-selected that. And I think there's a lot for, uh, to be gained from that as well. All right. And on a, in a market scale, it's a little harder for us to integrate everything on a larger scale, but we can do that. You know, we, uh, crop rotation is one of our biggest management tools for insects. And we find that that takes care of most of our pest insects. You know, a lot of insects, if they overwinter in the soil, they're not going to travel a long distance. True. So we have, we have, um, we have a pretty good rotation. We can look back till for, for years and years and see what was on this plot. We have, we keep accurate maps. So we can say, well, we know that this, a coal, uh, coal crop hasn't been on this ground for four years. So, you know, so we don't have problems with root rots in coal crops because of we've rotated that out through several different crop families for several years. So just keeping a good rotation and keeping a good map of your, and you can even do that on a small scale. It's not as effective if you're kind of limited in space, but still, if you have tomatoes here one year, put them somewhere else the next year, you know, rotate those crops. And even on air scale, we can interplant, you know, we can take a row of, of tomatoes, a row of flowers, a row of peppers, a row of something else, even if we're doing row crops, but we can switch up the rows. And, and that really slows the pest down. They have a hard time finding stuff. And if they, they can't just jump from one row to the next. So that helps an awful lot, just that kind of diversity as well in interplanting. Yeah, we, we one thing my grandfather always did, and I've continued to do to this day, is he would plant certain things that didn't take up space all over the place. Like we, we would put garlic everywhere. Like, cause it just, it's one little thing and it doesn't really take up much space. So there'd be garlic in between the tomatoes. There'd be garlic in between the cucumbers. Uh, my grandmother was big on just throwing dill seed everywhere. And, you know, it came up where it came up and it did what it did. But then you had these different flavors or I should say odors and <laughs> habitat. And that created this confusion for the pests. And, you know, when you have a confused pest, if it does have a natural predator, it's going to get picked off, right? Like it's, 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 it's trying to figure things out. So it's not completely on alert like it needs to be and it's more likely to be predated on absolutely and it's, it's kind of a little bit frustrating but i guess it's a lesson we should learn when you've you've really put a lot of intensive work into i don't know a pumpkin patch or something and your best pumpkin is the one by the compost pile that's you know just grew up naturally and you're like well maybe we should take a lesson from that you know that's that's the place it likes to be the soil's fertile there and the germination was just at the right time so we can learn from those as well yeah, you make me laugh because, you know, we get some mild winters here. And the one year we had a mild winter, my brother-in-law has a compost pile. They just do flowers and stuff. And they threw the jack-o'-lantern in there. And he swore to God it wasn't a seed. It was the top of the pumpkin put roots out and and sent a vine out. And it went like 50 foot down his fence. He turned it back around. It went back up and almost made it back. And it put pumpkins on. And I didn't believe him. I told him he was, told him he was full of crap. But when I went over and looked at it, it was, he was right. The, the dad gone wow. top of the pumpkin grew a new pumpkin vine. 
I've never seen that before in my life before. I've never heard of that. Yeah, I've never even seen that. So that's, that's I called him he was full of crap, and I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, I would have called that one too. But that, yeah, proof's in the pudding there. So that's great. Yeah, we have a motherwort, which is an herb. It's it's taking our compost pile. I guess we had thrown some seed in there at one point, but it's yeah. popping up everywhere now. And it's a, it's a nice medicinal herb. So we just leave it, you know, kind of move it around a little bit. So all those happy accidents are, are good things. So, um, are you strictly on the marketing side of growing or do you do any training or education? Have you stacked any form of that into what your enterprise is? We do. I think if you're in this business, I, I think you want to see other people in the business succeed. Um, you're, you're not going to get anywhere trying to, you know, cut your competition out. We're all in this together, especially those that, you know, want to, want to promote self-sufficiency. So the more people you can train, the more people you can teach. You know, we always educate our customers. That's a lot of what we do. But we never discourage our customers from growing their own food. You know, I don't ever feel like they're going to grow all their own food and never buy anything from me. What they do most of the time is they appreciate what we grow more because they've grown it themselves. They see how difficult it is and they appreciate it more. So they learn that appreciation. So we're educating customers. We're also educating um, whether it's school groups that come out for tours or our local community. We're giving a talk, I think, in a couple of days here. It's just promoting more backyard sustainable agriculture. You know, that's what we need. We need more people growing their own food. You know, we have interns sometimes, people that are wanting to go into this for, you know, in business. So that's the best way to learn is actually we mentioned earlier, you know, how do you learn? How do you get into it? Go find a farm and work there. You know, go find an internship, go volunteer. You know, that's how you learn this stuff. You can read a lot of books and learn some stuff from books, but hands on is your definitely your best way to learn stuff. So we educate that way as well. So all this is promoting you know, more growing, more self-sufficiency. And I think that's a good thing. I think we can all get on board with that. You know, I couldn't agree more. And I see it in, in farmer's markets. And we have two issues in Texas with farmer's markets. One, we have some really stupid regulations. <laughs> uh, Texas is generally a very free state. It's a good state to be in business in. Um, but it is not a good state to run farmer's markets in. So that's its first problem. But the second problem really is that we have an awful lot of uh, poor mindset with the farmer's markets we do have. So if you want to go to a farmer's market here, the first question is, well, what are you selling? And it's like, if we already have a couple of vendors selling that stuff, we don't want you because it's too much competition. And then I've been, you know, to places I mock like LA or something like that, that have the giant farmer's markets. There's, it's like a, it's like a freaking carnival every weekend. And there are cars on top of cars on top of cars of people parked wanting to get into them like like they're going into a carnival. And I think that it, this idea that we need to, to gild out competition is really flawed in our farmer's markets, but in a lot of growers' mindsets and whatever. Like if there's another grower down the road, I have competition. No, you have the start of a nexus, right? Like if you have a – like I, I think about it this way. If you have a restaurant all by itself, it's a great restaurant then it, it does well. But if you create kind of what we call, I don't know what the, if they call them this elsewhere, but we have places in Texas they refer to as like a restaurant row. There's like 10 really good, not Captain D's or some crap, like really good high-end, maybe if they're chains, they're smaller chains, upper-end restaurants all in one place. And they're all packed all the time because it becomes a draw. And I think that we're thinking backwards sometimes in this. Yeah, we are, we have been, um, fortunate to be in a market for 15 years. That's a, that's a good example of a farmer's market. You know, all the farmers, we get along. 
we if we don't have something, we'll push it to push customers to them to somebody else that does have it. You know, and I think, as you said, what what's the result of that? We see that everybody does well and we get more customers. You know, uh, if, if we are all selling, if three or four people are selling the same thing, then, you know, that's OK. You know, they have customers have choice. They like choice. It's going to be a draw. More people are going to come and everybody's going to do better. Yeah, I've seen we've been to several farmers markets in our career that um, over 20 years, that's <laughs> they haven't been the greatest thing. But we don't stay there long uh, because uh, you do get that sometimes that cutthroat competition. And what happens? The farmers market declines and it actually doesn't do that well. So you need a good manager. You need um, you need open rules, but you do need some rules. But you need somebody that kind of knows what they're doing to set that up and to encourage, you know, to encourage um, uh, good vendors, to encourage more customers. Uh, you're right on that one. We only have a couple uh, all-caps questions here, except for the one we took earlier. Let's hit those real quick and wrap up. Um, should you start a following or marketing before starting to grow what you plan on selling from Brian? What do you think on that? I think that's a good idea. Um, you know, get some people on board with what you're going to do. Uh, see if they're willing to pay for stuff and then see what they want. You know, maybe they don't want the things that you want to grow. Uh, and that's not going to do you any good. But if, if there's something that you can grow, something that they're looking for, maybe it's mushrooms and you have everybody in your neighborhood wants mushrooms. Well, that may be something you want to investigate. So I think that's a good place to start. You can definitely start there and, and then see where that goes. And then we have here, I'm not really sure where this is going, but Mike V says, explain what the customer is always right really means again. I don't know if he's referring to some jackism that I burnt the brain cell out and forgot. But I would say that it doesn't mean anything is wrong uh, other than I would say the good customer is always right. Like when a reasonable customer or a good customer asks you for something that's something you can do, then they probably are right most of the time. But I would still even I've had good customers say, well, I think you should do this. And my response is no. And the reason is, first of all, I think you're the only one that will buy it. And then, then it's not sustainable or you don't understand my operation and you don't understand this one more thing actually disrupts my operation that I've, I finally tuned over the years. Yeah. And the good idea about knowing your farmer and having a relationship with your farmer is that you can come to your farmer and say, Hey, can you try this? And I've had that happen before. Good customers say, Hey, I've seen this variety of vegetable, you know, can you do this? Well, if it's reasonable, then I'll, I might I might try it. And if it's not, I'll go ahead and tell them, you know, I don't think this is going to work. You're the only person that wants this. But they, I do listen to them and because they're good customers and I'm going to take their input. And I maybe in the future, if it's opportunity that I can take care of, I'll do that in the future. But, um, yeah, you can't do everything and you can't be all things to all people because you'll have someone wanting one specific thing that yeah, would, it would cost you a lot more time and effort to find and grow. And then they'll not show up for it when they actually when it's time to sell it. You know, and even if they're a big customer, like I said, we had this one restaurant used to take 80 dozen eggs, and then one day they decided they didn't want to do it anymore. And we had worked with them over two years to build up to provide to them. Well, that hurts. Yeah. That hurts an awful lot. And it was, it was overpricing. And it was dumb because they sold 80 dozen of them on an appetizer. It was, uh, it was a duck confit on sweet potato chips. Mm-hmm. And it was a $14 dish. And we were like, just raise the price a dollar. And they're like, no, we can't do that. And I'm like, I guarantee you, your customer that comes in and buys this every week is going to be more pissed off that it's gone than it went from 14 to 15 bucks. But we, we couldn't reason with them. So you even have to be careful with, you know, the big customer, so to say. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, it just, some people go with the restaurant sales. We've done a little bit of restaurant sales. 
but we find that's probably worth uh, more trouble than it's worth a lot of times. They tend to want wholesale quantities with um, wholesale, with wholesale prices, and we find ourselves a little bit better off going just straight retail. But you know that's a, that's a viable market, and we've got some good restaurants around here that will pay top dollar for stuff as well. We have one more come in here. Uh, Christopher says, human biomass from city sewers, dangerous pharmaceuticals, question mark. It worked great for my strawberries, but human poop was always in the back of my mind. My feelings on this are that, like, city-provided compost that come from sewage waste streams, I'm not worried about toxicity from a standpoint of it, it, it making me sick or my customers sick. Mm-hmm. My problem with all mass-produced compost, and I'm I'm interested to hear if you have any experience with this at all, Chris, is that the way it's made, it's made in such quantities so quickly at such a high temperature. And I talked about this yesterday in my permaculture episode. It's actually detrimental to the growth of of quite a few plants. It tends to, like things like coal crops, uh, brassias and stuff like that, they seem to do well with it. But I've had issues with like tomatoes and peppers and stuff and growing in, in that kind of mass production compost stuff. And it goes away after a season or two as you move it toward the more beneficial side of fungi and bacteria. And everybody always blamed like glyphosate residues and stuff like that. And I'm like, well, I know for a fact I've gotten it from streams that don't have any. Right. Mm-hmm. But and then I've gotten it from streams where like place down the road, it's almost all tree trimmings. So you know you don't have glyphosate up in the top of a tree when somebody's topping trees. And you still have the same issue. And to me, it's more of the the method by which it's made, and it's why I kind of stick away from it. you have any thoughts on that? The only thing I would steer people away from uh, city sewer compost is that it's it's really high in um, uh, heavy metals, and that's often not that safe is. for vegetable crops. So stay away from that. We've had we had an issue down here where someone had applied it to some ag fields, and it had to be um, it was piled out and it had to be taken back away just because heavy metals are very dangerous, and, they, and city sewers concentrate heavy metals. It's, it's not, it's biologically safe because it's heated at high temperature. So you're not going to yeah. get bacteria from that. You're just going to get the composition is not the best natural thing for your vegetables to grow. So I would definitely steer, steer clear of sewage, anything that says city or municipal waste, unless it's like leaf litter, compost from the zoo. Uh, around here, we have a lot of, we have a horse industry. So there's a lot of good compost from the horse barns, which is just straw and horse manure. So that's safe, and that's a good compost. Very cool. Uh, let's one more. K Bonk says, because this is a cool question. In your farm journey, Chris, what was the most enjoyable experience that you didn't expect to enjoy? Oh wow, that's a tough question. <laughs> um, I guess probably the thing that I enjoy the most is the um, the lifestyle of being a farmer. Uh, I guess our expectation when probably our age, I'm, I'm in my forties, um, grow up, go to college, you know, get a, get a good job and, you know, work for the man. Uh, but when you're self-employed, when you can walk to work in the morning, um, when you really can steer your own day as far as if I want to get up at this time, if I want to work till 10 o'clock at night, if I want to get up in the morning, you're free to do that. And just that freedom of being self-employed, having no boss, you know, you, the, the, the problems come with that is that if you don't go out and do it, you don't make it. But that's personal responsibility. 
that I enjoy the freedom of that. So that's the thing that I really didn't even think about when I kind of got into this farming thing is that how much I would enjoy just, you know, our, our family homeschools. We, we live on a different schedule. You know, we can do uh, what we want when we do it. We took St. Patrick's Day off last week and planted potatoes. So that was how we celebrated. And the kids, I think they loved it. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll take that one, too. And I come at it from a different approach because I am not a professional farmer. We do sell some product, but it's mostly eggs. I'm more of a homesteader permaculturist. And if you had told me this was going to happen, I would have known I was going to enjoy it. I just didn't know what, know what happened. When we started putting all the little ponds in, and then at one year after we got a couple of ponds in where there was enough uh, time for the life cycle to play through, dragonflies. Dragonflies were everywhere. Different fuchsias and pinks and blues and mauves. Like, just they were, like, in my summertime, the place hums with dragonflies. And sitting out having a, a cup of coffee or a beer at the end of the day watching, you know, 20 different colors of dragonflies and hundreds of them zooming around. That's one of those things I don't know that you can put a price on. Absolutely. That's great. And, you know, that's what I would recommend too for the lifestyle that, you know, people, it, it is worth doing this um, as an occupation because uh, your, your schedule is going to be different, but, you know, we can't take, there's some benefits and some things that aren't so great. You know, we can't take vacations in the summer like normal people. But guess what? When we take vacations in the fall and the winter, we're by ourselves. You know, we have yeah. nothing crowded. So you can go all kinds of places in the wintertime. You know, life's a lot slower in the middle of the winter. You know, we're busy in the summertime. So you kind of get that, that, that seasonal rhythms of life. And that's, you know, what's that worth? That's worth a lot, I think. And I, I, we enjoy that, that part of it as well. Well, hey, I enjoyed our discussion today, Chris. I really appreciate you being here. I want to throw out again another plug for you for your book, if I can get the light to not be on there, The Complete Guide to Survival Gardening. There will be a link to where you can get this book in the audio show notes today. That link is in the video notes below. It won't work for about an hour. Uh, sometimes people say, it's not working. Well, it, it's not done. We're not finished yet. It's not up yet. Uh, but this will go out as an audio podcast for those that prefer that format. Or if you want to subscribe to us on any of the audio podcasting platforms, you can do that as well. That way you'll never miss an episode. You can always find out about the next stream coming up uh, at tspclive.com. And uh, we always have the information there for people. And Chris, man, I really enjoyed this uh, interview. Uh, thanks for joining us today. You got any final words for folks? I don't. I appreciate you having me and um, just um, keep keep farming and we need more of you. And with that, I appreciate you guys. We'll catch up to you tomorrow with uh, expert counsel Q&A show that will not be on a live stream. And then I'll be back on Friday with another episode of Outback with Jack. Well, I do hope you guys enjoyed that interview. If you did, remember, there's a couple ways you can support our show and thank us for the content that we put out. One, really simple and painless. You're going to buy something online today, tomorrow, this week, this month, sometime in the future. When you shop online, just go to tspaz.com first. T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com first. When you shop online, and no matter what you buy, you'll help support us and the work that we do. you also see all of our reviews. Item of the day today, I'm going to be real short on it. Same one from yesterday. It's the Streamlight Siege Lantern. The $74, $72, something in that range lantern is on sale for $32 bucks right now. It's less than the lower-end lantern that they have. This is a battery-operated LED lantern, and I know I also recommend the, the E-Tech City, the very, very inexpensive ones. They're about $5 a lantern. This is kind of your go-to, rely on, take camping with you, use on the back porch, use on a fishing trip lantern. 
The E-Tech City is a low-cost, put one in every room during an outage lantern. So they serve different purposes. I love this lantern. It is the absolute best battery-powered LED lantern you can buy, period. But it's expensive. Again, it's usually over $70. Bucks. It's on sale right now for like 60% off. You can find the write-up at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Just scroll down, look below today's episode, and you'll find it there. You go to tspaz.com, you can find everything I've ever reviewed, all categorized, all the categories are alphabetical, and you can see all my recommendations there. There's over 500 items in the catalog. I've bought all but maybe two of them that were given to me in return for review. I've disclosed those two when I did that. I bought it, I spent my money on it, and I would do it again, or I would not recommend it. And sometimes I find new items. You'll find an item. I don't take them out of the catalog. I'll be like, you'll see a note added. This is still a good item, but I now recommend this one because this new thing that came out is better, and here's why. And a redirect to that for you. So you always can trust the reviews you get at tspaz.com. Uh, next up, you can become a member. Time is running out on the March membership sale. Uh, remember, I did Anarchapogo last month, and I made a sale for that, uh, for people that watched the Anarchapogo thing. And I decided it was only right that I give it to all my listeners for a month. So you got it for the entire month of March. The discount code is MEXICO22, M-E-X-I-C-O-2-2, so the number 22. Use that when you sign up, and you can get MSB for 35 bucks a year instead of 50 bucks a year. It pays for itself many times over across a year if you use the discounts. Learn more at thesurvivalpodcast.com forward slash members. With that, let's wrap up. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I'll be back tomorrow with the Expert Council Q&A. And then we'll follow up on Friday with another episode of Outback with Jack, where I will continue answering your questions and inquiries about homesteading, permaculture, and things like that. This week was all solutions week. Maybe next week we'll, we'll peel back the layers on some more of the darkness that's out there. But I like to spend more of my time focusing on the light, the things in our, uh, our, our circles of control and influence. There's so many things that people are worried about and they think they're fighting and nothing you say and nothing you do will change it. Spend your time on the things in your own backyard, the things you can touch, the things you can influence, the things you can control, and you'll build a better life. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house. American way a dollar down a dollar a month and you'll 